0: If you would take your Bible, or if you have access to the Bible on your phone and you have that with you, open to Matthew chapter 5. We are going through uh, the Sermon on the Mount, and not just the Sermon on the Mount, but the entire book of Matthew, and so we are in chapter 5 this morning, and we're going to look at those verses starting in verse 21 here in just just a minute. I want to follow up on something that Jaron said earlier about mission opportunities, You may not have been able to go to Houston, but let me tell you about a couple of other opportunities coming up. First off, this Saturday, we are hosting a disaster relief training here at Emmaus. And so if you This Saturday at 8 o'clock, from 8 to noon, you can come, uh, maybe 1 o'clock, something like that, you can come and be trained for disaster recovery, disaster relief type opportunities where we go out and do work but also share the gospel. And so if you'd like to be a part of something like that, maybe you're trying to find a way to connect with people, you're looking for a way to get involved, you enjoy working with your hands, uh, you have skills in that area, this Saturday morning be a great way to connect. And so that training is here at Emmaus. The other thing, and I'd really ask you to consider this uh, as as an opportunity. I know it's hard to be gone, maybe from family or opportunities around Easter, but we have a partnership with a church in Calgary, Canada, and we are looking at putting a team of about four or five people in Calgary at Easter to help them both before Easter reach out to people, and then on the day of Easter, there at their services that they have in a movie theater, to be able to help out that morning, and so. In your mind, you may have yourself here at Easter. Consider if you might spend Easter in Calgary, Canada. Uh, Jim is going to be down here at the front after the service, and if you are interested in that opportunity, if you talk to Jim this morning, you haven't exactly signed yourself up for that, Um, maybe close, but not completely, Um, but if you would talk to Jim about that this morning, about the possibility of going to Calgary over Easter, it'd be a a great opportunity. Um, Short term as well, let me show you a quick slide about next Sunday. Uh, we have something next Sunday that we call Discover Emmaus. If you are a guest of ours, you've been around for a couple of weeks and you're trying to figure out where do I fit, how do I connect, is this the, really the place I need to be long term or not? Next Sunday, we have a free lunch from 11.45 to about 12.45. If you will fill out that card that you can tear out of the bulletin or just the card in the seat back in front of you and put that in the offering plate during our final psalm this morning. There's child care available if you need that. It helps us plan for the meal. We would love to have you come. Uh, you're not signing yourself up for membership. You're just saying, hey, I'd like to know more about the church. Find out if this is a place we need to be a part of. Is this a place that God would have us long term? So next Sunday, Stick around and have lunch with us uh, for about an hour after the service. You can meet staff, ask questions, those type of things. So I want to let you know about that. We'd love for you to be involved. At the end of the sermon, we'll, we'll sing a final psalm together, have a time of prayer. During that final psalm, the offering plates come around, and you can put that card in there at that time. So I want you to know about that. All right, Matthew chapter 5, reading from God's Word here in the Sermon on the Mount, starting in verse 21. And we're just going to take the first section of of what Jesus is speaking here, and then we'll pick up the rest of it in the next couple of weeks. So chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray together this morning, Emmaus. Father, thank you for the gift of gathering to worship God, what it means to be able to sing together, to study scripture together, just to slow down uh, during our lives and to focus on you. Father, we know that as we go through Matthew and through the Sermon on the Mount, there's some very hard sayings that we find here. As a word from you. God, I pray that our hearts would be open. God, help us to, uh, to understand clearly what you're calling us to do. It's so easy on something like this to listen and to go on, but your word does not allow that. God, you've called us to obedience, you've called us to response. God, there will be those this morning who are going to have to make very difficult decisions after the service today. God, would you give them courage, would you give them wisdom, would you give them humility? Father, I pray that you would work through our time together this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, how many of you, many of you are probably experts at this, how many of you know what a loophole is? Yeah, a loophole, yeah. Some of you specialized, you got through college because you specialized, majored in loopholes. Um, So so a loophole is where you have a rule, but you find a way around the rule, through the rule, disregarding the rule, missing the purpose of, of the rule. I did a little bit of research this week tried to find some of the greatest loopholes in, uh, in history. So in 1999, there was a man named David Phillips who was a civil engineer at the University of California, and he saw an ad from Healthy Choice Products that said you would get 1,000 frequent flyer miles for every 10 barcodes you sent in. So he did the math, and he purchased 12,150 cups of Healthy Choice Pudding um, and he said he was stocking up for Y2K, uh, if you remember, remember that. He was stocking up, and he earned 1.25 million flyer miles uh, because of all the pudding that he bought. And they had to shut down the program because, because of what he did. Uh, if you're familiar with NASCAR, you know that from the 1960s, you have a phrase that's even still used sometimes when you unit the rules. Uh, There was a famous racer at that time who made his name getting around the NASCAR rules, and people will still talk about eunuching the rules of how you manipulate things and get around things to make your car faster or whatever you do. This guy was so good that he has patents that are likely used in your vehicle today that came out of his loopholes that he found in the NASCAR rules of the 1960s. The Silna family, if you're into uh, basketball, there was the old ABA, and the Silna family had the St. Louis team from the old ABA basketball league. When the ABA went away and the NBA came in, the Silna family said, we won't push to have our St. Louis team in the NBA. We'll take a $2 million buyout. And then they requested a certain percentage of the TV rights from the NBA. Not such a big deal, except in the contract, they got those TV rights in perpetuity. No end to the contract. And so to this day, the Silna family still makes money off of NBA TV rights because of when they sold out their ABA team in, in the 1970s. They found a loophole, and they manipulated it. Now, I don't know if you saw the picture this week on uh on social media going around but maybe one of the greatest loopholes uh or or exploiting the rules was the guy that walked into the petco with his longhorn steer um so petco says you can bring your pet you can bring your animal into the store as long as they're on a leash So this guy had his longhorn on a leash and walked right into Petco uh, with with his longhorn. So I've seen some dogs in Petco that looked as big as longhorns, but I've never actually seen a longhorn in Petco. Now, when Petco made the rule, bring your animal in on a leash, did they ever imagine a longhorn coming in to the store? No, probably not, or they would have done something with the rules. People are prone to find loopholes to figure out how to use the rules to either make themselves look good or to get what they want. One of the things that you're gonna find as we go through these verses, as we think about the way that the New Testament works, there were groups of people who were constantly trying to find loopholes with God's rules that he would give his people, with God's commands. And if we're not careful, we're still guilty of that today. We're looking for loopholes around what God's word says about a particular issue. What you're going to find this morning is a group of people who heard a command from God and then tried to figure out a loophole to make it work for themselves. So how does this work? Well, you look in verse 21. Verse 21 in your Bible there, Matthew chapter 5, says this. Jesus is speaking to the, to the disciples and the other people are overhearing him. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment and then he begins verse 22 by saying I'm going to say something different or in addition to this but I say to you what's going on there in verse 21 that phrase in verse 21 about you shall not murder it comes from the 10 commandments you can find the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 5 or Exodus chapter 20 of your Old Testament. This is one of those commandments. And even from the very beginning of the Bible, as sin comes into the world, you have the Cain and Abel story very, on, very early on in the Bible. After the flood, when the Lord is speaking to Noah, he talks about how in Genesis chapter 9, there will be judgment for those who take the life of another. And so there's a commandment laid down that says, you shall not murder, and those who murder will be subject to judgment. Now, Jesus is going to take that, and he's going to say, but I say to you. Now, when he says that, here's the question. Is he doing away with the Old Testament commandment? Is he contradicting his father? My mean old father said, you shall not murder, but I'm the nice Jesus who came to earth, and I'm going to tell you something different. Is he doing that? No, he's not. And one of the reasons we know this is because of the verses that came just before. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 If you weren't with us last week, there's this section in Matthew chapter 5 from 17 to 20 that really sets the stage for everything else that's going to come. And in that, Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of those commands that were given to you. Those are the word of God given through the law and the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of those. I came to to fulfill them, how all of those things are wrapped up in the ministry that Jesus was going to bring. What was that going to look like? Well, verse 20 says this. When you get to Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, it says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And here's where our clue comes from. Jesus is not getting rid of of the commands that his father gave to the people. He's not getting rid of that, he's not abolishing that. Here's what he's doing. He's saying that with these commands, it's possible that you would misunderstand and misuse them. And so I am going to show you what true righteousness really looks like. Because with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, there was this mentality that was coming up where they were hearing a command like, you shall not murder, and they thought, oh good, I've never murdered, I won't face judgment, and so it was following the letter of the law, saying I've not murdered anybody, so I must be good with God, when they were missing the heart of the law. It was very much what I do in public, or what I do externally, but not about what God is doing in my life internally. And you find this so many different places in the scriptures. Where God would say, I don't want your sacrifices, I want your heart. Or these people, they praise me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. What God is looking for is a righteousness that comes from a transformed life. A righteousness that exceeds just keeping the law and finding loopholes around it. It's a righteousness that comes from the inside out. And you see this in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 16. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, David is being anointed as the king of the people. And you have a verse there that says, For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Because here's the deal. If the people looked at the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would have said, man, that person is righteous. They follow all the laws. They follow all the rules. They know how to handle all the laws, and they know all the loopholes and the ways around it. They know all those things, but it's not from the heart. We see on the outside, hey, look at that person. They are a good church person. Their family looks like they're put together. They show up to church on time. They all seem to care for one another. When inside, everything might be a mess. We see with the eyes, God sees to the heart. And here's the amazing thing about this story. We know from Scripture that David was called a man after God's own heart. However, what was David guilty of? Adultery and murder, among several other things. What are the first two things that Jesus is going to mention in Matthew chapter 5 when he's talking about true righteousness? He's going to mention murder and murder and adultery the pharisees could look at the situation and say we've never murdered anybody we've never actually committed adultery so look at us we're good and god says no no there's more it's it's about what comes from the heart and the place we see this really clearly is in matthew chapter 5 verse 48 if you look in your bible or in your phone you have this whole section that is laid out from verse 21 down to verse 47. So what's going to happen is Jesus is going to give six examples of what true righteousness really looks like. It could look like this on the outside, but this is what it looks like when it takes up residence in your heart. And then he's going to get to verse 48. And verse 48 is a summary or kind of a capstone of everything that's come before. In verse 48 he says this, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this is one of those verses that can cause extreme confusion because trying to bring the word perfect over from the original language to our language, you can lose some ideas. We hear perfect, and we think of never making a mistake, flawless, externally, there's no problems. However, the word perfect... When you take it here in the biblical language, the way the word perfect works, it's the word for whole or complete or undivided. So when you hear the word perfect, you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, what it means, be whole, be complete, even better, maybe this explanation, the outside your actions should match what's happening inside. Because in the Bible, The opposite of perfect is actually hypocrite. The idea here is that with a hypocrite, and we know we throw that word around, you talk about the church, I'm not gonna go to the church because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites, that idea. The word hypocrite in the Bible is when I act one way on the outside, but inside something completely different is going on. So I'm putting on an external show that says everything is good, I understand what it means to be a Christian, But inside, my heart is not right with the Lord. And if I could stop just a minute and ask you to hear me out here. Because of where we live geographically, here in Oklahoma in the year 2019, I do not know of anything more dangerous to our souls than this idea. Because it is possible that you would be motivated by keeping up a Christian exterior. My family looks good we have everything together, we're a part of a church, we, we have a Bible in our home, we vote a certain way, or we're very patriotic, we have all these ideas, these trappings that are caught up that externally, I look good, but inside my heart has never been transformed. I've never truly repented of sins and trusted in Jesus for salvation, so I look like a Christian on the outside, but really I'm just a Pharisee. I'm a hypocrite because I'm trying to live one way, but inside I'm different. If I could call us, and I could call me, <laughs> and I could call our whole church to this idea. There are certain places in the world that either it's obvious you're a Christian or not a Christian. There's, there's no fuzzy in between. But because of where we live and because of the background of our area and because of the time of the, the world, we live in a time where it's still possible to look one way but be different inside. And this morning, I would call you to let your heart be exposed to the Lord. Do not live your life trying to keep up a particular exterior that says, look at me, I'm a Christian, when you know in your home and in your heart that's not true. The healing comes when you confess and say, God, I've been trying to hold together something that I know is not true on the inside. And I need you, God, to change my life from the inside out. I repent of the way I've been living, and I trust in Jesus for salvation, not in anything I would do or any appearance I would give. Because we're always trying to keep up appearances. It's exhausting. And on top of that, it's damaging to the work of the church. We will never be who we need to be as a church. We will never be who we need to be as people when we're living one way on the outside, but internally our life has never been transformed. So what does it look like to see that happen here? Well, in verse 21, if you go back there, what's wrong with what the Pharisees are doing? What's what's wrong with this hypocritical way of looking? Well, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Oh, good. I won't face judgment because I haven't murdered. Hang on. Verse 22. But I say to you, Jesus is saying, this is the purpose behind this. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother, and this is the word for brother or sister, a a, a connection in Christ, a spiritual relationship, brother or sister, whoever is angry with his brother or sister will be liable to judgment. So the Pharisees that would say, hey, look, we're righteous, we've never murdered anybody. Jesus turns around and says, have you ever been angry with your brother or sister? Well, yeah, probably, but you can't hold, you, you can't put somebody on trial for being angry. Well, a human court might struggle with that, but a divine court will have no trouble with that. Because remember, God sees to the heart, not just the exterior. So outside, I've never murdered, I've never done that particular action, but inside my heart is full of anger against others. Let's think about anger for, for just a minute, how it works. Many of us, unfortunately, don't need much help with this, so you don't really need the preacher explanation because we, we, we experience it in our lives so often, but how, how does this idea of anger work? Anger plays primarily off hostility and alienation. So, When we describe love, or when we talk about marriage counseling or premarital counseling, the the type of phrases we talk about is, I am with you, and I am for you. So no matter what we go through, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to be on your team. I am for you. Love is able to say those two things. I am with you, and I am for you. Anger says the opposite. Get away from me, and I am not going to work for your advantage. So anger pushes people away. And anger begins to work against the good of, of the other person. We know anger comes from all kinds of places. I mean, ultimately, it comes from pride. Anger, when we react to situations, it's like we're saying, I would never struggle with this, and so I'm angry with you that you did to me something I would never do to you, when we know we're susceptible to so much in, in our own lives. Um, let's be honest anger comes a lot of the times when we're hungry. Um, that whole hanger thing <laughs> that gets the, uh, gets the best of you. Um, when you're hungry, when you're tired, when you're physically hurting, we're so much quicker to snap or to be angry or to be against uh, another person. Those types of anger that, that comes up in our life, this lack of self-control and knowing how to respond to somebody. Anger comes from so many places, but at the end of the day, it says get away from me, alienation and hostility, I'm not working for, for your good. It begins to set us up against someone else. It's also driven by this idea of, of coveting and quarreling. When you think about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, to I hope you make a note in your Bible or stick a note deep in your head <laughs> to make a connection with the book of James in the New Testament. When you read the book of James at the end of your New Testament, and then you go back and you read the Sermon on the Mount, you can understand the connection between James and Jesus and their family and the things they would have talked about and shared and how God's work worked through this. Let me show you a couple of verses from James particularly. James 4, verses 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. I want what you have, and so I'm going to work against you to get it for myself. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. One of the things we begin to learn from this is that anger often comes from a place of not truly trusting the Lord. So I want something that I don't have, and I begin to become bitter or resentful of the other person, I become angry toward them, and God says, just ask me for that. Don't fight against one another to gain something. Trust me that that I will give that to you. Go back to verse 22 for a second. So here's the idea. I I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, but the second half of that verse, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This idea here of anger being expressed through our words. That word insults, how many of your Bibles uh, has the word raka? R-A-C-A or R-A-K-A, yeah. So raka is the, uh, is the giving over of kind of an Aramaic word into Greek, and so they just put it right in there in English. It's a word that means empty or empty head. So if you need to add another uh, word to your language to use when you're speaking against somebody, um, you empty head is, is kind of what it's saying. Like, you have nothing in there, and, and it's a way of giving an insult. It, it was in some ways a very common insult that you would give to somebody You fool is connected to the word where we get our word moron. So, for the love of God, don't go home and call anybody an empty head or a moron because you've completely gone against the word of God um, at that that point. But the idea here is you you have these insults that were very common insults. These were the type of regular, everyday insults that would have been given to somebody but what happens? You're going to be taken before the council, and you are going to be judged with the hell of fire. And, and here's, what would have been the, here's what Jesus is going for with this verse. If he does his work right in this situation, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law should chuckle at this point. Or they should laugh to themselves and say, that's not right. I'm just angry. I'm just insulting, speaking against someone. That doesn't make me guilty to stand before the council, and it's sure not going to send me to hell, dot, dot, dot. Is it? I mean, yeah, if I murder somebody, sure, that's a, that's a big deal. Somebody should definitely face judgment. But I was just angry with that person. I'm not going to be judged, right? Am I? Yes, that's exactly Jesus is trying to get their attention with this is a big deal that God takes seriously not just the external action of murder but the condition of our heart Matthew 12 Jesus says out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks have you ever let something slip out and you're like oh that wasn't me at all I don't know where that came from oh except I do know exactly where that came from it came from here and, and it was me way more than I ever wanted to admit that it was me. That thing that came out, we speak from the abundance of of the heart, and so these words become a way of speaking against those around us. Look at verses 23 and 24. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Okay, Jesus is going to give us a few examples of how how to work this out. So the first example, now, now get in your mind, if you don't know the Bible map perfectly, don't worry about it, but just get in your mind the idea that someone is living in the northern part of the land where Jesus is doing his ministry. So, For lack of a better connection, put yourself in Tulsa, all right? So so you're living in Tulsa, and the temple is kind of down in the southern part of the land a little bit. So we're not making a moral judgment, but put the temple in Oklahoma City, okay? So you're living in Tulsa, and you want to give an offering of Thanksgiving or praise, or it's one of the offerings, and so you travel down to Oklahoma City, About 80, 90 miles would have been the distance that someone would have traveled. You have your offering, you get there to the temple and you're gonna make your sacrifice, your offering and you remember, oh man, I really spoke badly against my friend this week and I know they're angry with me and I was angry at them and and there's, there's a division between us. Now you have to decide Do I give this offering before the Lord? Do I continue my religious ritual in Oklahoma City? Or do I pack up and go back to Tulsa? Not driving, mind you, walking back. Here's the justification in your mind. That's gonna take a long time. Like, I've wasted a long time getting here. It took forever to get the kids dressed. Uh, to make it to church. <laughs> it was hard to get here. We walked here. That offering was expensive for me, and now it's going to rot away and waste. I'm not even going to be able to use it, and I'm going to go back up there just because I was angry with someone? And the Lord says, absolutely, yes. It's going to take time, and it's going to be expensive, but do not come and try to worship me by giving this offering and pretend that the situation during the week was not a big deal because it was a big deal. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Put that relationship back together. Reconciliation is a good word to sum up the whole Bible. You get a lot of different verses in the Bible about reconciliation. Let me show you one just in light of time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 all of this that Paul has been speaking about, he says all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled to us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. First of all, speaking about how people can be reconciled to God primarily, and then as we're reconciled to God, it reconciles us to one another because when we're reconciled with God, we're in a position to be able to reconcile with one another. And so as the people of God, we should be speaking about reconciliation, about how that happens. Now, keep it in mind Romans 12:18, which is always a good reminder. As much as it depends upon you, live at peace with all people. So you have traveled to Oklahoma City to give your offering. You spoke badly to your friend in Tulsa, and so you left your offering in Oklahoma City, and you've walked back to Tulsa to make things right. You spent time, you spent money, and you got back there, and your friend is not interested in reconciling. They don't care about the fact that you've come back to try to make things right. They don't care about what you have to say. At that point, can you control the other person's response? No. One of the most liberating things in all of life is realizing I cannot control the way another person responds. What I'm responsible for is that I was obedient to the Lord and going to make that right. I was responsible. I was angry. I caused that relationship to be broken. And so according to God's word, I'm going to go back and seek reconciliation in that situation. Now, we get another, another example in verse 25. So Matthew chapter 5 Verse 25, we get another example here. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the guard, and you be put in prison. Now, 1 Corinthians 6 says that as Christians, we should do everything possible not to see something taken before court. We should seek reconciliation. We should seek justice between ourselves as brothers and sisters. But what this verse is really getting at the heart of saying, and this is so important, and I know we're kind of in the middle toward the end. It's so easy to to just check out, but hear me out on this. What verse 25 is getting at is the Jesus people don't allow unresolved relationships to simmer. and and, and to stay there. Jesus' people say as quickly as you can, and as actively, proactively as you can, you seek to mend that relationship. Because we know we can be tempted to say things like, time heals all wounds, and there's a way in which that does come to pass sometimes, but it is not the way of Jesus that he's calling us to. He's saying if there's an unresolved relationship, if there is something that is broken, act now. Act now to see that relationship healed. You can't force it, you can't make it, but you will act now to see that relationship. People do not allow things to be unresolved. We live kind of in the south, a little bit in the south, and and so we have been trained to cover over bad relationships. (laughs) We know in public how to act around people, they're like, oh, hey, they're on good terms. No, they absolutely hate each other, but you would never know because we've grown up in a world in which we have learned to let unresolved relationships remain but to act in a certain way that it looks okay. And Jesus says, we're not going to live that way. That's not, you've been reconciled to God, so reconcile with one another. Why? Because verse 26 says, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. In other words, judgment will come. If you do not act to reconcile bad relationships, there are consequences that come with that. And we've already seen an example of what that looks like. Okay, now the hard part. What action, what response do we take? How do we detect anger in our lives? How do I know that I have a problem? Well, normally you don't need someone else to help you, but what would it look like to detect anger in your life? I've got a couple of ways to think about this. Words that are spoken. (laughs) You say, well, what I said to that person wasn't that bad. Eh, That's not the issue. Remember, raka and fool. It's even the everyday insults, the words you speak against people that reveal, man, I was angrier at that person than I actually realized. And those words coming out of my mouth showed that that to be true. Anytime... (laughs) Anytime we find ourselves justifying our actions, usually it's a sign there was something wrong there. It wasn't that big a deal or that's just who I am. I'm just an intense person. I'm just a, no, it's not just, we don't justify ourselves. There's really something there that that needs to be dealt with. When I find myself withholding good from someone else, so I'm not open to sharing with that person or meeting their needs, or I can't bring myself to pray for them and to pray for their good, there's a good sign. Anger is at work in that situation. Coveting, you guys don't need me to tell you this, but anger causes bitterness that just simmers, and you start to become jealous of someone that you realize, in normal circumstances, I would never be jealous of that person. But there's something there that is making me feel jealous or covetous of of, of a situation. And then finally avoidance of a person. Let me show you a couple of verses that we're gonna get to later. It's at the very end of chapter five, verses 46 and 40, oh, not through 57, through, through 47. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. If you think to yourselves, what relationship should I seek to resolve? Or where is their anger? Here's your clue. Who do I avoid in the hallway? <laughs> or who do I not answer the phone when, when they call or, or when they text? Or who do I go out of the way to make sure I don't drive by their house? God says avoiding people, not greeting them, is a sign that there's something going on in our hearts. Why is it such a big deal? Because unresolved relationships are a sign of a broken relationship before God. 1 John chapter four. 1 John hits us from this direction many different times, but this is the verse that says, if anyone says, I love God, you came this morning and said, look at me, I'm at church, I love God. And hates his brother, you're lying about saying that you love God. Because, He who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And if that sounds like a difficult phrase to hear, it's because it is. And it's because it's hard for me to stand on stage and read, noting the reality of that. So it's a sign of a broken vertical relationship with God. On top of that, anger will hinder worship, anger will hinder our spiritual growth, and anger will hinder the mission that God has called us to. The Bible says to be very careful about taking the Lord's Supper when there's an unresolved relationship. The people have even gotten sick because of that. You cannot come and sing together when you know you're so angry about a person who's sitting on the other side of of the room. 1 Peter 3, guys, husbands, if you are angry toward your wife or not treating her with gentleness... It says that the Lord will not hear your prayers, that anger hinders those things. We can't grow spiritually in the way that God has called us to be meek and to be peacemakers if we're full of anger. And on top of that, you take all of that, anger will always hinder the mission of the church. Will always hinder the mission of the church. Why? It's because of what Jesus said in John chapter 13. John chapter 13, Jesus says, If you want to understand who we are as the people of God, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We've gone to Houston. Our church, thank God, has a reputation in the community of caring for people and being on mission We have so many mission trips lined up in the years to come. But the greatest way that we can share Jesus with the world around us is if we love one another. And so when we are angry and we have unresolved relationships with one another, it doesn't matter how many mission trips Jim plans. and It doesn't matter how many projects we do in our community because we have missed the core reality of being Jesus people, that we love one another. So here's the final slide for us to look at and the final thing to think about. Number one, what is my vertical relationship like with God? Have I been depending on the fact that I was raised in a Christian home, I bring my family to church some, I live a pretty good life, am I depending on that or have I completely repented of sins and trusted in Jesus? What is that relationship like with God? And then the question is, what horizontal relationships do I need to seek reconciliation? So here's what I would ask you to do. As you're putting up your Bible, I would ask you to pull out your phone. You're in church. Normally you're told to put your phone up. I would ask you to get your phone out. Bennett, Bring me my phone. I left it down there. We're going to have an object lesson. Thanks, bud. Get out your phone. If you don't have a smartphone, God bless you. You're so much happier than the rest of us. But uh, <laughs> grab a pen and, and, and a piece of paper or the sermon notes. So either a pen in your hand or, or a smartphone in your hand. Let me ask you this. During this final song, what text message do you need to send Who do you need to contact to say I cannot leave this place unless I reach out to that person because I know there's an unresolved relationship. I know there's some anger in my heart that I have not dealt with. I give you, I know this is a hard action to do, you have complete freedom that here in just a moment when I pray and we get ready to sing, you may think to yourself, I can't stand up and sing that psalm. There's a relationship that I need to deal with and I need to deal with it now. Get your stuff and walk out. If anyone's judgmental towards you, they got something else going on in their heart. Take action. Make yourself a note that says, call person X this afternoon. Call person X this afternoon. We have been reconciled with God through Jesus Christ, and we have been called to show love to those around us, and we cannot allow unresolved relationships to hinder the mission that God has called us to. I'm gonna say a prayer. After I do, we're gonna sing a song that says, it is well with my soul. We're gonna pass the offering plates. Hear me out on this. You might say, I cannot give my offering this morning because I need to go deal with someone. Do not give your offering this morning if there's a relationship that you need to go deal with. Deal with that relationship. Whatever it is that God is calling you to do, take action. You know what it is you need to do. Take action on it. We're going to sing the song. We're going to take up our offering, and then we'll be dismissed after that. Let's pray together. Father, we pray together right now. God, there are going to be people who are going to make phone calls today. There are going to be people who are going to send text messages today, and they are going to do everything they can not to hit the send button, not to hit the call button. Those hardest calls are probably going to be to family members, to those closest to us. God, maybe to situations that have been left unresolved for 20 or 30 years and we think, oh, it's not that big a deal, it wouldn't matter now. God, we ask for the courage and the humility to act. Not act because we're trying to follow a rule, but God, we know what you have done in our own lives. And God, we know how destructive anger can be. And so as we take up an offering, or as we sing a song about it being well with our souls, God, we've seen those, we do those things in trust of how good you are. But God, we know your word is very clear that we need to deal with other things even before we do those. God, I pray that today would be so important for Emmaus. God, I pray that we would take the actions that you've called us to take. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs)